Hello and welcome to the Covert Nerd Podcast. I appreciate the time you give me. It means a lot to me. Go to covertnerd.net for all the ways you can reach out to me and all the show notes on all the different things we'll be discussing today. So without further ado, let's dive right in and nerd it up. Good to have Randy here from the Growlix podcast. He's been on, Randy has been on episodes before, so I'll include a link in the show notes so you can hear the episode that we talked about before. But listen to this one first and then go back and hear us talk about Super Nintendo games. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about the consoles. Because I know on our last episode, Randy, we kind of touched on the consoles a little bit. And so that's what kind of sparked my interest in well let's just have an episode talking about some of our favorite consoles but first i'll have randy introduce himself real quick and then we'll dive right in awesome awesome yeah hey hello i'm randall sylvie uh like lee said i'm from the Grolix podcast you can hear me on that show at grolixpodcast.com we talk about uh lately we've been talking about a lot of movies but mostly comic books TV shows, stuff like that. And then we also have a movie spinoff podcast called the Grolic Cinematic Universe. And I do other things, but those are the that's the main thing your listeners would probably be interested in. Yeah, it's a great podcast with Jesse and Melanie. So definitely mm-hmm. check it out. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can hear what he has to say and Melanie and Jesse and what they all have to say about all things comics and nerdy stuff. But today we wanted to talk about our favorite consoles. And so we'll each have three. I have my three. Randy has his three. And we're going to deep dive into them about memories about them and kind of what was going on in our lives maybe at that time and the fun that we had with these video game consoles. But first, real quick, as we were researching it, and I'll try to remember to put this in the show notes, Randy sent me a list of all the video game consoles that have been made. I didn't realize how many had come out since the late 70s. The 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the Wikipedia page for, I don't know what the title would be, but you'll have the link, like you said. By the way, thank you for inviting me on for another video game podcast. Like I said last time, I don't ever get to talk about video games on podcasts, and I kind of love it. So, cool. um, (laughs) But you mentioned consoles, and I was like, okay, well, what consoles were there in like the 80s instead the early generations it kind of blew my mind there are so many there must have been so many just kind of one-off consoles in the late 70s like a a pong in a pong or a pong clone that just came and went because it was like you know i don't know if you look at the 90s there's like 12 consoles the 70s and 80s there was like 700 and something home consoles i was like (laughs) what that's not a not an exaggeration. No. The, the cycle when I was doing research for this, the cycle on consoles back then was about two years compared to five years, six years now. And everybody and their dog was getting into the game of video game consoles and the designs. I remember that one that you sent. It's like a, a pyramid. And it used looked like a, a Winchester rifle for the gun that you use for shooting <laughs> games. It was insane. It looked like it was made of wood, but and you just kind of rotate it. Okay, we're going to play the gun game now. And so it's on this side of the pyramid and then has a little dial for Pong <laughs> on the other so side. Weird. It was. I think we could do an episode on most insane game consoles. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, because I, I didn't. 
I didn't even know most of those existed. So obviously I didn't pick any of those super obscure ones today, but it'd be interesting to do a deep dive on some of the really weird ones. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's deep dive into one of them. My first pick is going to be the Atari Video Pinball System. I think it was Atari Video Pinball C360, I think is the full name. And it was released in 1977, but we got this one probably in 78, 79, maybe even 80. But I was looking back at this. It is the the way, way it's set up, and I'll have pictures in the show notes so you, the listener, can go check it out. But it basically is a big block of plastic, and it has a dial on the top, and then it has two little push buttons on the side for your pinball games because it was a pinball game, a basketball game, and then breakout or pong, whatever, well, excuse me, breakout and then pong too. And you use a little side buttons as flippers for the for the pinball game and then the dial in the front you used for breakout and then it ran and it was color but the most insane thing is is that it ran on six c batteries six c batteries yeah yeah let that roll off the tongue six c batteries it didn't plug in and I remember we'd always have to replace the stupid things with the, the batteries. And you, when it started running low on batteries, the lines on the screen started to get blurry a little bit and kind of fade in and out. And you hooked it up to your TV and it was done through the antenna system because back then you didn't have HDMI or even the RCA jacks. You just had this antenna attachment that would kind of you had these two screws on the back of your TV you'd loosen them up and put these little wires underneath and tighten it back down again and that's how it hooked up and it was color but the way we had it at our house is the nice TV was upstairs and it was color and the downstairs had an old black and white TV so we didn't even have color for for this system sometimes my parents would let us bring it upstairs and and play with it up there but so the seven video games that it had were four pinball pinball variations a basketball game and two versions of breakout so breakout had the little paddle at the bottom and then you knock out all the little color tiles at the top and the i don't remember much about the basketball game i just remember the pinball and the break breakout by far was the one that we we played the most but I don't know if you've ever seen this one, Randy, before or, or heard about it. I, I've heard of it, but I've never seen it. I've never used one. I've never seen one in the wild. It's super interesting. I, I'm so surprised that it runs on batteries. But I know. This is definite, it's that's so weird. But this is one of those like, uh, it's kind of what Nintendo does anymore. It's one of those, the controller is the console. Yes, yeah. Where the controls are built right into the console. That's that's very interesting. I so, yeah, it is like a, it's the, like a Wii U or a, or a, yeah. a Switch. And I didn't know about the. It's cool that it's has pinball and it's got the buttons on the side for the flippers. That's fun. Yeah, it's in researching it. Like we were saying earlier, there are a lot of systems like this that didn't. Ha- this is before the days of the cartridge. So you just put all your games in one mm. big block unit. And we primarily had this on the floor in front of the TV. So you'd kind of lay on your stomach or you might sit and put it on your lap and, and use it that way. And that's you use the buttons. There's some buttons on the front. You have five different buttons. One's reset, select, option, power, and then ball serve. So when you did pong or breakout, you hit the little button and then the ball comes down and you start playing then is how, how that worked. Mm-hmm. So the the guts of it, your your calculator or your watch probably has more 
more oh, graphic yeah. capabilities than this thing. But it was, you know, it was our first system. I was probably five, six years old at the, at the most when we got it. And so for me, it was like, whoa, this is really cool. And I grew up in the, in the country out in Nebraska. So we didn't have an arcade nearby. And so this was, I'm surprised my parents bought this actually. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, it the, caused the, the kind of had a pong market back then, but this kind of came to an end, of course, when later on the Atari 2600 came out and you could get more, more than seven games on a system and the cost for this, I was researching this. So the cost for this back in 77 on one website said it was $179, which would be $758 in today's dollars. Wow. Can you imagine your parents spending almost 800 bucks or even now spending $758 for a game system that only played seven games? Seven games. There's yes. No, yeah. There's no uh, expanding the library there. Wow. That's insane. I, I was just shocked when I ran the numbers on that. There's a website you can go to and plug in the year and it'll, you put the dollar amount in, it tells you what that is valued today, but seven, let's see systems like a PlayStation four and Xbox or what? Four ninety nine, I think for a base system. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 500 bucks. So this is $258 more than that. <laughs> I just so when I saw I heard that or saw that I was like I'm, I'm sure my parents picked it up a year or two later so it probably wasn't quite that but it was still still a lot of money and I think the the thing that of course this thing is nostalgic for me so of course I'm probably it's not that great of a system when you kind of look at it but at the time and it's your first system you kind of like whoa this is cool I I have no plans to buy this you can buy it on eBay and other places but. I don't know. We don't even have an antenna hookup. You'd probably have to get some sort of adapter to make it work. I'll go ahead and mention it because it's not going to be one of my picks. But I had an Atari 2600 that had the two-prong like antenna screw thing. You could get an adapter that would adapt that or maybe it even had it, would have the feature where it goes straight to a coaxial cable like a normal antenna. Yeah. But even yeah. that... With with a, a lot of modern TVs, even that, since they have digital tuners, I don't even know if that works. <laughs> That's funny. It's so you can't even. I'm you sure there's an adapter there, for the adapter. Yeah, you need an adapter for the <laughs> adapter. Exactly. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the speakers are just built into the console, kind of on top of the speaker, or the speakers are on top of the console, is where that comes out at. But yeah, I just remember the batteries too, and it was a lot of fun. Like I said, I played a lot of Breakout on this one, and Breakout was huge back then. So, so it didn't yeah. even put sound out through the TV? No, it was only on the console. So yeah, the power and the speakers and everything was just built into this box. The only thing you needed the TV for was for the video part of it. Interesting. Just kind of weird. But I'll include in the show notes some reviews of the system as you guys does a YouTube video. And I found the original manual for it online that you can go look at the the manual and how to put the batteries in and how to hook it up and just all the, the cool. fun details on it. But yeah, it was... It was a good system. Like I said, first video game system we ever had. So it's got a special place in my heart. For my first pick, I'm actually going to I'm going to cop out a little bit and end up handing it over to you because my first pick was the Atari 5200. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm looking at your notes was released in 82, the year I was born. Uh, oh. yeah, okay. So this is. This is, I guess, technically my first console, except it wasn't my console. I distinctly remember this was my parents' console. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, yeah, 
this is, I mean, this is the only console I recall them having that for themselves to where they would actively play it. Uh, I don't know if they just got, if maybe video games got ahead of them or something, but eventually like they weren't that interested in video games. But when I was super young, I remember we had this and eventually I did get myself a console. It was an Atari 2600. And I remember being so disappointed in that thing because (laughs) the 5200 is a massive step up from the 2600. And looking at through your notes, like you'll get to it, but so I figure maybe we'll kind of tag team this one a little bit. Yeah, no but problem. Eventually, the con- the controllers, the controllers were the big downfall to this. Well, the industry at the time was the downfall, but the controllers contributed to this system not succeeding because, for one, they're weird, but uh, notoriously bad. They'd fail. The controllers had a lot of issues, and that's ultimately what happened to my parents' system is the controllers went, and after a while, you just couldn't get a replacement. Or the replacement were so expensive because it was kind of a specialty thing that they just never really hassled with it. Um, yeah, it was that was when I was doing the research. That was not just we thought maybe it was just us, but for the time they really tried to innovate because mm-hmm. the way the controllers made up, they tried to make it a 360, 360 degree controller because at the time you could only go four directions, up, down, left, or right, and so there wasn't a whole lot of of options for gameplay and whatnot, but the 5200 on the other hand, you could actually go in all 360 degree directions but like you said the controller would not center so when you let go of the controller it would still go left or right or whatever direction you were pushing mm-hmm. and I'll I'll try to describe the controller for the listener the way it's set up it's kind of elongated it's I don't know it's about 6 to 7 inches long and about 4 inches wide but the funny thing is and Atari was notorious for doing this they always put a keypad in there so you have this <laughs> yep numeric keypad for whatever reason they put that on the kind of the bottom part of the of the brick so to speak and then at the top you had a small joystick and then at the top you had three buttons i think it was power reset and pause but they were kind of indented into the controller and then on the side this is probably one of the first left right buttons because then you Mm -hmm. kind of you held the controller in one hand, you controlled it with the, the joystick with your other hand, but then you pressed on the sides and there were two buttons on each side. So you had four buttons total, but only two of them actually worked because they were simultaneous. So you only, you really only had an A and a B, so to speak. I remember those controllers were a nightmare. Mm-hmm. They're but, super uh, interesting. And it's when people who are not familiar with the system, they, they look at it, the dial pad because it is totally like a phone dial pad to where yes. it's even got the star and the pound keys in there. And people are so bewildered by that. But how that would work is games. Most games would come with a little plastic card that yep. would slot over that. And it would basically have different buttons. Basically, it was kind of a assignable. You couldn't assign it, but it was just uh, added, what, 12, 12 extra buttons yes. that a game could use for whatever purpose and yeah they'd have these little cards that you'd slide into it that would tell you what the button's supposed to do also looking at it now it's pretty strange because as a right-handed person maybe it's because modern computer or modern 
video games, you move usually with the left joystick. Mm-hmm. But looking at it now, I would want to hold the controller with my left hand and use the joystick with my right hand. Yes. That's how it seems. Also, it is just blocky. It's basically like an old phone with a joystick sticking out the top of it. <laughs> yes, it's like go find that white phone on your grandma's wall and then add yeah. a joystick to it, and that would be would be this. But yeah, back to those little covers. So each game could have its own custom cover, so it would be in a different, like the one I have in the picture. It's River Raid, and it would have its own logo, the River Raid logo on it, the colors, and you can – so it was kind of – it was gimmicky but yeah still it, it made use of that keypad in some way shape or form because otherwise it just looks kind of wonky but atari stuck with the keypad all the way through till the jaguar didn't jaguar. they did that they did they did weird weird they were that was gonna be it huh there's <laughs> probably a story of that i bet you it's some designer at atari and said that's we're always gonna keep a keypad and that's the way it's gonna be and yeah I'm sure there's a story behind that, but I, that's cool that you had this system because I, there was one kid at our school that had an Atari 5200 and that was it out of probably a hundred plus kids at the time. So they only that sold, was- I think 2 million systems sold on this. So it, it did not take off like they had thought. No. And that this, this was my quote unquote obscure pick. I was like, my other picks aren't that aren't too surprising, but this one I was like, "Oh yeah, the fifty two hundred. Nobody's expecting that." And then I look at your notes, and I was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> cool." So see, there is there's one other person on this in this entire state that had this. <laughs> uh, yeah, was, exactly. This one was just like the the Atari. This one we got this on Christmas of eighty two or eighty three. I wasn't sure. That's interesting though, Randy, that your parents got this one. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of funny. Did they? Like you said, later on, they weren't really that interested in games, but no, for the most part, not like I talked, like I talked a little bit about on, on the Super Nintendo episode is there was a couple games they'd get into like out of this world and stuff like that. But a game I'll mention later. Yeah, no, like after the 5200, they just I don't know. They got old, I guess, all of a sudden. But uh, <laughs> my parents were pretty young when they had me. So okay, having a game console, I mean, nowadays it's common for adults to have game consoles. But at that point, like, you know, they were young enough. Having a game console wasn't totally unusual. Um, but yeah, they, they I don't know when they got it. I just always remember. I remember it was just there, you know. Yeah. And they yeah. played it for they played it for a long time till the controllers went out. And then they were just kind of done, I guess. Yeah, because you couldn't. We had the command controller which was more like an atari 2600 controller where you have the joystick and you had the the two buttons so it was a traditional traditional controller so we found we were able to find that and we got a little bit extra life out of the out of the system but i i can't remember if we bought any other replacement controllers i think it was just the two that it came with it came with pac-man and then the command controller was the other one but if you look in there, it was $189 in 1982, which would be $503 today. So your parents spent $503 <laughs> essentially on a game system. So did my Man, parents. <laughs> early 90s, Randy would be upset if he realized that. And I'm like, yeah. I, want, I want a system. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you can go back to your parents and say, you guys realize you spent the equivalent of $500 on a game system and, and you complained <laughs> about my you know, Nintendo or Super Nintendo or whatever. Yep, yep. <laughs> so now, what, I, what games I, did you have, Randy? I remember specifically, I don't remember River Raid. 
I'm kind of surprised because that I, that was a, a game I remember playing on the 2600 quite a bit. But uh, Joust, I'm pretty sure yes. Pac-Man, and I can't remember. the Joust and Pac-Man were the main two I remember. I, I don't know the direct comparison, so I don't know if this was quite like at arcade level. Maybe it was, but I do know that it felt like playing the actual arcade compared to the 2600 versions of the same games, which were real poor. <laughs> yes. Big one is Pac-Man. Pac-Man mm-hmm. on the 5200 was very close to the arcade. I don't know that you could tell a whole lot of difference on that one. But when you're comparing the 2600 Pac-Man, I guess anything looks <laughs> yeah, better oh, than it, that. <laughs> 2600 Pac-Man is horrible. And Joust, I feel like, was a little bit better on the 2600, but still didn't compare to the 5200 uh, because the colors and, yeah, it was just much more advanced. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had Joust, Pac-Man, Congo Bongo, Dig Dug, uh, Popeye, River Raid, like you mentioned, and then Pole Position, which is a racing game. But Dig Dug was, was a blast. I remember we played that for hours and hours on end well all of them we played for hours and hours on end but uh, my the one kid that my brother had that or knew that had a 5200 he also had pitfall and jungle hunt were two others that we played it seems like centipede was centipede on that system yep yeah yeah it had to been seems like we had centipede as well oh okay that's a fun one Mm mm-hmm yeah, we played lots of pole position, a racing game, which, again, trying to get that 3D perspective on a 5200 was, for its time, it was actually pretty good. And you hit the signs and you explode. And again, for an 8-bit system, it was pretty advanced. And it mm-hmm. was the they tried to market it as the replacement for the 2600. One thing I did read that they made a mistake on that they probably should have done was make it backwards compatible. So that you can yeah. play 2,600 cartridges on it, which they did do on their next system, the 7,800. They made it backwards compatible for the 2,600 because I guess a lot of people had bought the 2,600 said, well, what do I do with all these cartridges? But no, you're right with the – because people had a ton of 2,600 games. It would have been super smart of them to make it backwards compatible. Of course, even today, I don't know that – does. I'm not – aficionado but i don't know that that playstation is playstation 4 can play playstation 3 games do they i I, honestly i'm not sure it's always iffy that's always one of the things that comes up with one of the new with the new systems coming out and usually how it seems is when they launch a new system like the new xbox or a new playstation it's like there's it's not backwards compatible sorry people get upset yeah and then eventually they cave and they're like okay well we figured it out most of the games are back it's compatible you know, compatible with most games now. So, you know, it's something where it's like, it's obviously not a, a high priority for the developers, but eventually they kind of get around to like, okay, let's, let's figure out how to make it work. And since everything's disc based, I feel yeah. like it's probably easier now than figuring out how to make the console play this old cartridge, which is a different shape than the current cartridges. Stuff yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as the, games move more and more to online where you don't have mm-hmm. physical media why why not make it compatible it's all just a yeah it's just a program now yeah. i mean it was before but like you said you just download it 
figuring out how to make the operating system run it. And this system came with 69 original games that it came out with. And then, like I said, it came with Pac-Man, less than 70 games on this system from 82 to 86. So for four years, they were making games for it, which was not too bad. Again, I, I, other, if it would have fixed the controllers, this system, I think might have, might've been able to, to be the, the next 2600, I think, because they had Atari at the time, especially had a lot of money to, to throw at developers. Spec wise, if you look, I got the, it's kind of funny, the, the chip that they use in this, it's called the, the 6502 processor was the same chip that Atari, the Atari 2600 used the Atari eight bit family, Apple II, the Nest used the same chip, the Commodore 64, the Atari Lynx, and the BBC Micro, I guess is what it was called. Mm-hmm. So that chip was made in, I believe, 76 or 75, but it was the same processor that they used all the way, like I said, to the Atari Lynx. So we're talking late 80s, early 90s that that same processor was used. That's wild. That's yeah. that's really surprising to me. Yeah, I, I, I guess shocked. it goes to, and this kind of ties into a little bit of the research I was doing on the other systems that I'll get to is, I guess it kind of comes down to a lot of like, it's not just the processor, it's also graphics processor and sound, like how it all plays together seems to play a pretty big role in defining it. it advances in these systems and it only had a 300 320 by 240 resolution <laughs> compared to now which is 1080 and i've got the specs in there for the switch so you can kind of see but the processor was only 1.79 megahertz compared to the cpu and the switch was an eight core 1.02 gigahertz processor so night and day <laughs> yeah for sure on the capability, so a good system. My son actually found one at a used game store, and we brought it home just to try to hook it up, but then it wouldn't power on, and so we're just kind of stuck. But that'd be kind of cool, maybe to play again. I don't. I'm not knocking anybody that wants to go collect these things, but I'm just like again with all the games that were prior consoles we're talking about. You can find an emulator, at least experience some of it. I know you're not experiencing the controllers and the hardware but for me just having an emulator playing it is good enough i'm too the cheap. ability <laughs> the ability to the ability to play all of these games with an xbox controller is amazing to me i like <laughs> i like i mean I, maybe i shouldn't say it but i like emulators it's 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 cool being able to do that it so. is one thing i wanted to mention on the original controller real quick is it on the joystick it had that little rubber around the base of it mm-hmm. I don't know if on yours, but after, I don't know, maybe a month or two, it all came off. Yep. Yep. Okay. Same thing. Same same issues across the board on those things. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And then I think what happened is dirt would just get in there and then it just muck up the muck up the the system i think is is what happens so 5200 so go check it out i'll include links in the show notes so you can kind of see some gameplay so what's your next pick or all right mine i guess i don't know how we want to do that (laughs) well i'll go ahead and jump in because i feel bad for making you talk so much right off the bat we're gonna get a little timey-wimey on our time frames here but i'm my doctor who reference it it was yes (laughs) where's our doctor who there's no doctor who this year really (laughs) frustrates me um okay so i'm gonna leapfrog in time a little bit here to 
the Super Nintendo. There's there's a lot of aspects of this, especially in the games that I, we don't have to go too much into because, uh, listener, if you haven't, you should check out the other episode I was a guest on. The our favorite Super Nintendo games is a good time. Exactly. Super Nintendo released in Japan as the Super Famicom in '90, and in the U.S. the Super Nintendo in '91. This was Nintendo's follow-up to the NES, which was super successful. And it was also very successful successful, and became the best-selling console of the 16-bit generation. And it launched at a price of $199 in the U.S., which, according to Wikipedia, was equivalent to... This is Even this is out of date because this is equivalent to inflation last year, 2018. $366 now. Kind of pricey, but not as bad as the, the no. ones we've talked about so far. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And you get to change uh, out games. Exactly. You're not <laughs> stuck with... Right? It's like a third of the cost. And you're not stuck with just seven games. <laughs> Kids today don't know how good they have it. <laughs> right? <laughs> In Japan, the Famicom, it launched... It actually only had two games on launch. But I think it picked up a third the week of. I don't remember what the third was. But the two initial games were Super Mario World and F-Zero, which is... Those are two very solid launch titles. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the U.S., it launched with, of course, Super Mario World, which was actually bundled with the console, uh, making that an even better deal. And also F-Zero, Pilot, Pilot Wings, SimCity, and uh, is it Gradius? Gradius or Gradius, yeah. Gradius. Yeah. That's the one of those games I haven't really played that much of. F-Zero and Pilot Wings were both, uh, both made use of the console's much-advertised Mode 7 Yes, that was a huge deal. It, Yeah. Oh, man, it was such a big, like, advertising point. Mode 7. It was kind of a huge deal because we're talking about, you know, we're coming off the NES generation, the 8-bit generation. So the deal with Mode 7 is there were – I actually watched a YouTube video that went into way more detail about all this than I could even really grasp. But it was very interesting. So there are actually eight modes. Mode seven being the eighth because programmers are programmers. It's mode zero was one. Okay, um, but yep. mode mode seven was used as like the advertising an advertising point because it was kind of the flashy one. It's the it's basically the programming language that allowed them to kind of do a, a fake 3D effect. It was all still flat images but it could like skew in a way that would give it a 3d appearance and f-zero and pilot wings use those use that um, amongst other games but off the bat you know f-zero used it really well actually oh yeah because the speed that you're moving on that game is a racing game and and then mm -hmm. pilot wings you're falling i can't remember all the game. there's different games you can play but so you're in the sky falling down towards the earth and so making it look like you're falling so stuff's getting closer was kind of without seeing the the lines because nest mm -hmm. could do that but you could see the lines on the screen that where they were trying to get from near to far to look right like it was right moving. well and like uh, the same with pilot wings, but like F zero. So you had the track and your car and stuff, but the all the other background was pretty much a single flat, single large flat image. And mode seven made it so that they could basically give it a perspective appearance and rotate. Yes. Rotating was a, a big deal. Pilot wings, that's a big one where like like you said, if you're falling, the ground like would 
it zoom up, but it also it would rotate, which kind of gave yeah. a little extra sense of 360 degree movement. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. It could rotate too. So in terms of other things that it was, let's see, step up from the NES, obviously, you know, the kind of that 3D effect. But the obvious improvement being the move from 8-bit processor to a 16-bit processor, mm-hmm. 16-bit games, which was a, another big selling point. And I guarantee none of us knew what that meant. <laughs> We're just like, <laughs> it's bigger. It's bigger. What? Nintendo was 8. This is 16. That's better. Yes. Better um, graphics, base, better sound. Exactly. Basically, it meant the system could handle a lot more uh, calculations, so you could do more complex uh, processing. The NES had a palette of 64 color values, and the Super Nintendo jumped up to 32,768 colors. (laughs) Very weird specific number, but yes. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, quite a bit. That's one of the, I mean, if you look at Mario Brothers 3 looked pretty good for for a Nintendo game. Oh yeah, uh, and they had kind of added. Uh, there was extra chips, and there was they added extra stuff into the cart to be able to make it look that way. But then, if you look at that compared to Super Mario World, it is quite a jump. And then you have to mention the one thing the fifty two hundred didn't get right, but the Super NES did was the controller. The controllers for the Super Nintendo are still talked about today as one of the best. Maybe not the best, but it's up there as one of the best controllers. I mean, really, I kind of feel like it defined what game controllers will have been since then. Because look at the PlayStation controller, the Xbox controller. Nintendo kind of reluctantly kind of goes back to this design a little bit occasionally. I think their pro controller for the Switch is kind of like this. But it's that the D-pad. Of course, they've added joysticks now, but it's the D-pad, the shoulder buttons, and the four face buttons. Yes. And that's pretty much been controllers since the Super Nintendo. Because you look at the PlayStation controllers from the first, the PlayStation 1, I mean, they're essentially the same thing. It's just mm-hmm. slightly less designed. But yeah, the shoulder controllers. So actually, I was talking about that earlier. Maybe the 5200 was the first one to have shoulder controllers. Yeah. I mean, it's super interesting, <laughs> too. Well, I almost go back further to your first pick with the little flipper buttons. Oh, are yes. Buttons on the side of the controller. It's like just this has got shoulder controllers. <laughs> yep, yep. But yeah, the, uh, then you had four buttons, four action buttons. That was a pretty big deal for a home console. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, the NES had, had one, or had two. And then the Genesis, which was the Sega Genesis, which was the Super Nintendo's direct competitor, main competitor, initially had three yes and i think it had a start button but i don't believe it had a select button and then there was no shoulder buttons and eventually they came out with the i don't know the six button version even that was kind of weird because it wasn't like nintendo kind of nailed it with maximizing the finger space i guess you know with the the two shoulder buttons four buttons for a thumb is totally doable you start looking at like the Genesis six buttons and it's it's a little weird. I don't know. They just kind of nailed it in terms of design. I think six is probably too many, but I think you're at the four is perfect. But even when the four came out, you're like, what are they going to use with all these buttons? But then you had Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. And that, yeah, exactly. That took care of that. Well, I mean, like Super Mario World has, I guess, three 
button actions. There's run, jump, and like spin jump. Yeah. So even super, even that doesn't take total advantage of it. But yeah, then you're ta- then you, then all the arcade fighters. You start looking at that to where I mean that's probably a big reason Sega had to push like push out the six button controller because most fighting games had six attacks and you know six action buttons did you get this one for christmas or what when i can't remember when when you got this this one i yeah i believe this was christmas christmas or birthday which is for me like a month off so i know if i got this for christmas i think it was a slim year slim birthday year yep yep that's how it worked at our house and what game so came with mario world uh, came that, did you get a game with it when you got it, or you, did you just have Mario World when you first got it? I can't recall. I, I think it. I think I just had Mario World because if they were going to get me the system, they probably weren't going <laughs> to shell out extra for another game. They're like, yeah. it comes with a game. That was probably a big selling point. I don't. Have, we don't have to get a game. But games I did eventually get, though. I do have a kind of a. I don't think this is quite all the games I had, but. So I had Super Mario World, Super Mario All-Stars, which was awesome. Mario Kart, Out of This World. And if you want to hear me talk uh, quite a bit about that, you can check out the Super Nintendo episode. And Mortal Kombat 2 and 3. And then a bunch of movie license games. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, all Mario All-Stars, the Mortal Kombat games. Those are games that I was like, I want this game, I want this game, but I'd harass them. But then, like, when they'd randomly get me a game... Movie license game. Yes. Uh, I had the the hunt for Red October, which was a <laughs> right weird. Yes. Why why was that even a Super Nintendo game? The hunt for Red October. It was probably in the like, ten dollar ten dollar bin at Walmart oh, or something sure. like that. Yeah. I'm sure. It, and it honestly, it wasn't a terrible game. I do have fond memories of playing it. It was like a you play a little submarine and you go around and you got to shoot other things i don't even know what they were things that weren't in the hunt for red october i can tell you that (laughs) and it was a super scope six enabled game but i did not have a super scope six at any time so i don't know how that play was but you know you played normally with a controller yeah yeah oh i also have scope (laughs) yeah what a big bulky ridiculous thing (laughs) remember the Uh, gun we had on nes forget that this is a bazooka bazooka we're upgrading we're turning this up to 11 (laughs) exactly turning it up to 11 it's the 90s see we're extreme (laughs) i remember we talked about that on the other one i was like oh gosh you gotta and later on i got we talk about accessories but i think we could do again another episode just on accessories for these systems oh yeah and oh, Super yeah, Scope sure. would be up there. <laughs> Super Scope 6. <laughs> what were, I wonder, what's with the 6? Do That's you think what that was really oh, some development? I, that, I think I know because when you bought the Super Scope, it came with a game cartridge, and it had six games on the cartridge, I think. Oh. So I think that's where the 6 right. comes from. I think you're right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's where the six came from. So you got the Super Scope Bazooka plus six games that were exclusive to the Super Scope. <laughs> Just how they work the gimmick, I guess. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> Somebody Sorry, I derailed like, you. you. Need alliteration. Alliteration. <laughs> I also had Robocop 3, which, you know, that's it's Robocop. So that's it's Robocop yeah. 3, which is a terrible movie. But that's okay. That game was actually Robocop was so slow. Like it looked good, but man, that game was super hard. 
And I also had Cliffhanger. Do you remember oh. the Cliffhanger movie with uh, yeah. Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone? Stallone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. This was another hard game. It wasn't super special. It was basically kind of a, a side-scroller brawler mixed with not as good, but mixed with, like, pitfall style. You got to jump over gaps and stuff because it's Cliffhanger. <laughs> It was all right. It was okay. It was not great, but it was okay. <laughs> yeah, you could tell. I was looking at the list of games for other systems, and there was a uh, towards the end. I think they started getting more movie type games because movie companies were jumping on the bandwagon to generate some revenue, and Nintendo or, or whoever, Atari, or whatever, was looking for ways to sell games. So why not? But you're right. Typically, movie games just don't do very well. I don't know. Can you name a movie game that you played that was like, this is actually pretty darn good? There are very few, especially old school games, because and I think it's still the case is they basically companies will just they have to pay the license. They have to pay the movie studios for the license to use these things. So they'll pick up licensing, knowing that they'll probably sell X amount of costs based on the name alone. So then everything else, they're like as cheap as possible. Pump it out. Yes. It doesn't matter. And if you look at, at the 8-bit and 16-bit era of stuff, most of it was just some generic side-scroller with a skin of this, you know, reskinned with whatever the movie theme was. Yes. Look at the history of even Atari back on the 2600. Like, movie games did not treat that system well. E.T. No. was a big disaster. E. Yep, yep, exactly. That's the first one you think of. The Super Nintendo, yeah, it was. they had some great games and just mm-hmm. they were trying to catch up because Sega had put out their 16-bit system and so Nintendo was still riding the NES wave because it was still selling well. I think their philosophy was why move too quickly on this 16-bit system when the NES is selling well. But then all of a sudden, Genesis, Sega Genesis 16-bit system started selling like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. And then Nintendo put this one out. But it Nintendo caught up fairly quickly. There's a book out there called Console Wars that talks about from 89 to about 91, Sega and Nintendo vying for that 16-bit spot. Nintendo, it's they're very reluctant uh, with everything. And they always get... They have to be pushed into moving forward with the technology because that seems to be what happened with when they finally decided to move forward, you know, move away from the SNES. It was kind of the same type of deal. Yes, they wanted to write it out as long as they could, which I get as a company. But yes, yeah, they really have to be pushed into it. The only other things I have to say, because you mentioned Genesis and stuff. So the Super Nintendo actually didn't have a very great processor. I want to say it was essentially a the same type of processor, 8-bit processor, not too far off of what they used in the the Nintendo. The 16-bit, the RAM and the other elements, the the, the graphics uh, and the sound, which was kind of uh, based on audio samples rather than like the typical synthesizer sound, kind of give it a boost for sure. Okay. Slowdown was a big issue. And that's one of the things like Genesis was a faster processor, but there were aspects like uh, graphical aspects that Super Nintendo had a leg up on. Yeah, I think the Super Nintendo, like you said, yeah, was uh, would, would well, and the NES would do this too. Well, NES would get more blurry 
and slow down. But yeah, even the Super NES would still struggle sometimes with a lot of on-screen. But I think they fixed that later. What like with the the Nintendo had, you can put extra chips in the cartridge. Yeah, to boost like the that super the Super FX chip. Yes, <laughs> that's a little bit different. That wasn't just for slowdown, but like that yeah. they used in Star Fox and a couple other games, but added yeah. some like three more advanced 3D capabilities. And that was kind of a big thing is they developed the Super Nintendo specifically to allow for enhancements through chips in the cartridges. Yeah. One thing talking about Nintendo, one thing Nintendo did different than a lot of other companies and they they did this until recently. They would sell the consoles at cost. Typically, you would mm-hmm. sell a console for a loss, and you just try to make it up on the games. But Nintendo, for the NES, the Super NES, Nintendo 64, GameCube, and the Wii, the Wii U was the first system that they sold for a loss. And I think that might be why they wait a little bit longer to try to get enough revenue generated so that they can put enough into the console to sell it at cost versus at a loss. Mm -hmm. So that was a different strategy that they took up until recently with their game systems. And I think that's why their game systems typically are not the top of the line processor, top of the line RAM, you know, all the specs to keep the cost down. I think that's what they do is they try to sell it. Since they're going to sell it at a cost, they know they have to kind of try to keep it a little more basic than they, than they typically do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the Super Nintendo. Good system. I think because you, so you had right now, you had the 2600, mm-hmm. the 5200, and then the Super NES growing y- up. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. All right. Cool. Well, that's your pick. So my next pick is tailgating on onto the Super NES is the NES. So it's predecessor. So I'm mm-hmm. going basically in chronological order of systems we got the old atari the atari 5200 and then the super the, not super nest the nest which we got in for christmas of 1988 we got the basic system they sold several different packages the basic system we got i can't remember if it, i think i had two controllers but no game but I, I think maybe it had one controller, but I might be wrong. But we got that one for Christmas, and it was eighty nine dollars back in nineteen eighty eight. In today's dollars, it'd be one hundred ninety three dollars today, so two hundred dollars for the system. The deluxe system, though, that they came out with was one hundred and seventy nine dollars in nineteen eighty four. That's when it was released in America. It would be four hundred and forty two dollars today. But it came out in Japan in July of eighty three and then in the US in November, I believe, of eighty four. And I think it was only in New York at the time and then kind of hit mainstream in eighty five. But excellent system we were so excited when we got this we're like oh my gosh i don't know if you had this at your house randy but if it was under the christmas tree you kind of knew probably what it was beforehand Uh because you you do the shake you kind of feel it out for the weight and but that christmas they did a deal where they hid the presents they do this little my grandma did this where she would write a little poem that kind of rhymed and then you had to go find your gift. That way she didn't have to put it under the Christmas tree and you could figure out what it was. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. She knew like we would figure it out. <laughs> but anyway, excellent system. Let's see the system or the games that 
we got, I think I have a list here, but I had the, the top 15 games for the mm-hmm. Nintendo and I'll have the link in the show notes for that. But just to kind of jar, jar your memory on some of them. Oh, okay. I know what it was. So the first games we got with the system were double dragon and the legend of Zelda. And remember, I remember Legend of Zelda because we were leaving the next day to go on some Christmas trip and we were going to be home for about two weeks, which is complete torture for a kid. You get a nest and you have to leave and you can't play it. So we stayed up all night long and played Zelda just because we knew the next day we were going to be gone. And so, yeah, can you imagine Randy getting a game system and then you can't play it for a week, week and a half or whatever we were gone? No, that's that's torture. <laughs> I know. Hey, look at this. Here's a shiny new game system. Now we're leaving town for a couple of weeks. What? Yeah, I know. I'm like, can we take it with us? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, so they wouldn't let us take it with us, and I was like, oh man. But the I love this system just because it was it was definitely my system. We had lots of fun with the this game or this this console. Had favorite games were, were of course Zelda and Double Dragon, Blaster Master, which is a really hard game by. Sunsoft. Sunsoft was notorious for making hard games. They made Fester's Quest was another one that was really hard. Oh, yeah. Pro Wrestling, the one that came out with the original system. I like that. We didn't have it, but I borrowed it because we did the the cartridge swapping thing at school say hey i'll give you blaster master if you give me pro wrestling or you know whatever it was and it was a way to play games without having to pay for it instead of renting oh, yeah it. i don't did you guys do that no no i think okay. if my parents found out i i gave a game away to somebody even just temporarily i think they'd be upset oh really okay <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah. We did it all the we time. Paid, so we're like, we paid X amount of money for that game, and you're just gonna let some kid run off with it. I'm sure I did it a couple times, but yeah, you know, generally yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see some other games that I, were fun. Was Mega Man Three, Super Mario Brothers Two, Bionic Commando, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The first one, that one was really hyped. People really wanted that game when it came out. It was it was a fun game. It's hard though. Again, it's another one of those hard games. Metroid, Shadowgate. Shadowgate was kind of unique in the fact that it was based on a PC game where you point and click at certain. So on the screen, yeah. you have kind of a not a painting, but just a, a, a stagnant screen and you had to click on stuff and you would just click on, you know, turn this knob and uh, pick this pencil up and and you would just solve these little mysteries and and try to get to the end that way. And it was kind of a mystery game, but it was, it was unique. It wasn't, it was okay. I, I, I wasn't enthralled with it, but it was just totally different because mm-hmm. it was a point and click type game. Oh, one thing I want to uh, mention is when you have, we, we played downstairs again, just like our Atari and, but we did have color by this time. So that was nice. <laughs> we yeah. were stuck in black and white, but of course you get to argue over who gets to play and, one thing we did was we were playing Mega Man 3, got to Dr. Willie, and we couldn't figure out how to beat him. Over and over and over, we kept trying to beat him. And I don't know if you remember these, Randy, and they might have had it on the Super NES too, but you could call an official Nintendo game counselor. <laughs> oh, and, my God. Yeah, yeah. And help. And you had to pay, I think it was a dollar a minute or something like that. And we had to beg my mom to let us call. I was like, we can't figure this thing out. And, and finally she relented and we called and he's like, oh yeah, you just need to use 
bubble man, I think is what it was to defeat Dr. Willie. But yeah, a, of course there was, we had the subscription to Nintendo power magazine. And of course there's ads all over the place call the, and talk to an official game counselor. And these guys get paid to play video games. And you know, for 1988, that was a big deal. Uh-huh. Can you imagine how many angry parents ended up calling those places after they got phone bills? Oh. <laughs> because it's geared almost 100% at kids. Oh, I bet there were so many angry parents. Well, no, 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 Randy. It says right on there, ask your parents for permission. Oh, you, uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure every kid did, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a lot of angry parents, I'm sure, calling Nintendo. What is this? We have an $800 phone bill. And, and people yeah. today have no, especially if you're talking to somebody young, they're like, you had to pay per minute to talk to somebody? Of course, the, the notion of actually talking to somebody on the phone is almost, you know, gone. Right. But to actually I have think, to pay to talk. I think there's still the equivalent today though and i think it's worse not in the paid per minute thing although some internet companies are bringing that back and that's horrible but <laughs> microtransactions microtransactions are uh, okay. those are worse because they're built right into the games yeah but i know people who have had the issue where their kids like grab their credit cards like microtransaction away that's a big problem but uh this feels like kind of the early version of that. You're right. This is microtransaction 1.0. Right? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> One thing I was, when I was researching this is the initial box art for the Nintendo had, it was kind of pixelated box art and I'll have some, some examples in the show notes. But if you remember on the 2600, the box art, of course, was done elaborate and extensive. Uh-huh. And then you flip it over and like, oh, my gosh, this is nothing like it. Pixels. Yep. Yeah. So this was shortly after the video game crash in the early 80s. And so retailers wanted to make sure that what the game was on the box art was more in line with what the actual game was. And so that was Nintendo's strategy on those first 15 games. That's why they look totally different on those first 15 games than, or maybe it wasn't 15, 12 games. I can't remember, but those first games were more pixelated on the front rather than all drawn up and all fancy and, and whatnot. So that was their strategy. That's the black box games, right? Yes. The black box. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think those are super cool looking too. I like them. They're kind of cool. Yeah. But uh, the, some people are like, well, it's not. But you have to think Nintendo had to. And I, when I was researching this, Nintendo had to do a lot of convincing to retailers to be able to carry this system because they got oh, yeah. burned by uh, the other companies in the, in the early 80s. And that's why it came with Rob the Robot was they were also marketing it as a toy not necessarily a video game system. And so they had to do a lot of finagling to get that. But the system was produced in America until 1995, and it was only got discontinued in Japan until 2003. So it went from wow. 83, 83 to 2003. So 20 years it was still being made and sold in Japan. That's insane. Wow. <laughs> they sold 60 million systems, which the number one system was a PlayStation 2, which sold 115 million. So, I mean, still 60 million for mid to late 80s is still very impressive. And that's probably yeah. why they hung on to it so long and didn't transition to the Super Nintendo for, for quite a while. Yeah, I didn't have a Nintendo, but... Everyone I knew had a Nintendo. So I played a ton of Nintendo. I, I believe it that it sold wildly because everybody had one. 
So yeah, I won't spend much time on it, but I found some fun accessories and I know we talked about this earlier, but we could do a whole episode just on accessories uh-huh. because they had, we had the game genie, which is uh, you, you plug it in to the cartridge and then you plug this little attachment into the system and it lets you put cheat codes in. It's a way to extend the life of the system because it came out later and you could get infinite lives on Super Mario 3 or maybe you could have all of the... On Double Dragon, you can have all the, the extra points on Double Dragon, and that's the that's what it would let you do. And it's then basically the Nessus- simplified hacking is it of is the, yeah. of the games, Le- yeah, legal hacking. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't. And then we had. And, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and I believe Nintendo was not fond of that. There was a couple other devices like that. They did not enjoy appreciate no. any of those. They reluctantly let the company do this because yeah. they knew it would draw a little more life out of the system for just a little longer and sell some and, and mm-hmm. let people hold on to the system longer rather than go buy a Genesis. Yeah. And yeah. but yeah, it was a fun, fun thing. You put these codes in and it lets you do certain things. And then we had the Nest Advantage, which was an arcade style attachment to it. But another one that my friend of my brother had was the power pad. So you hook this yeah. pad onto the floor or you hook it into the system and it's this pad that, well, it's kind of like the DDR if the, in modern terms. You, you put it on the floor and you're basically using your feet as a controller. So the game that it worked well with was track and field. So if you're running, mm-hmm. you would run as fast as you could and jump. And so it's gimmicky. But the other ones I found, I, I didn't know they had this, was called the Nest Chair. So I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's this chair that you sit in you use, you lean left or right to move or or forward or backwards to move your person around. And then it has handlebars that go up on each side and a button. So your two buttons are use your thumbs to shoot with. And so it's kind of like a a helicopter simulator or, or plane simulator, which would work, excuse me, it would work great with that. And in fact, the guy on YouTube was playing tiger Halley with it. So tiger Halley would be perfect for something like this, but Oh my gosh, (laughs) <laughs> the thing looks it looks interesting i mean give him props for trying this but he said and i agree with a game like super mario brothers it just does oh, not no work. no because you have to move and it just it's it's too slow you can't move your body that quickly for fast jumps like super mario or when you're trying to run but uh yeah. <laughs> the picture Hilarious. you got there the picture you've got there is super interesting. That is not what I would have imagined it looked like. That looks like a very kind of basic, almost exercise equipment thing or something. <laughs> See, it, Nintendo abs of steel. Right. Yeah. Well, hey, you know, maybe they were trying to we fit before way before we fit. <laughs> <laughs> so that one was a good one. And then they also had the first 3d system so it's this headset that you put on and basically the screen is in the headset but it didn't work out too well they only released it in japan because it gave people headaches and nausea so it's kind of like the first oculus rift it did not sell well and then the last one i wanted to mention real quick was the famicom modem so it's a modem on the nintendo there's a port on the bottom that you can plug stuff into that people didn't use very often but in japan you could plug this modem in and you could access livestock trades game cheats jokes weather forecast and best of all horse racing you could bet on horse races that's what they wow. used it for in japan 
<laughs> it was hilarious. Just That's, that last one and horse betting. Hey, it, again, uh, harkens to uh, modern gaming with loot boxes being <laughs> the debate of if that's gambling. <laughs> they had actual gambling way back on the Famicom. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, real gaming only in Japan. <laughs> Sorry, listener in Japan, but man, you guys have the the weirdest stuff over there. It seems like, but that anyway, that VR type headset. It, I've never seen that. That blows my mind. Well, Sega had one, too, for the Sega Master System. I didn't know this either. I kind of vaguely remember, but, but yeah, they had kind of a similar system for the or similar setup for the Master System. But there's a whole slew on the Wikipedia page for accessories for the Nintendo. Like I said, we could easily spend several episodes just on wacky mm-hmm. accessories like the Super Scope 6. And so, yeah, that's all I got on the Nintendo. Then my last one here, and I was initially a little concerned that this was maybe too newish, but uh, I, I don't think so. We were doing like 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, just fa- favorite consoles in general. So it could be, okay. heck, you could even do the Switch. It's just these are the ones that I was more familiar with because it was kind of the coming of age systems. Right, right. Okay, well, then this is right in line with that. So the next system I had uh, was the Sony PlayStation. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's so interesting looking, especially at those those peripherals you you mentioned about on the NES and stuff. So the the PlayStation was released uh, in December of ninety four in Japan, September of ninety five in North America and Europe, and November of ninety five in Australia. And uh, the system launched at a price of two hundred and ninety nine dollars. Two hundred and ninety nine dollars, which is. About what systems are currently going for, too. I mean, yeah, some will, some will be like four hundred at launch, but that's a, that specific price is kind of a big thing with PlayStations. Um, the PlayStation was actually supposed to be the next Super Nintendo. It came about because Nintendo had got with Sony for Sony's disc technology and was working with Sony on a the SNES wait what's the the Super NES or Super Famicom CD-ROM system it would have been called the SNES CD basically the Sega CD of Nintendo which there are actually like if you look it up on YouTube there are a few prototypes and early production versions of that console that are actually out in the wild you can find um there's there's some cool YouTube videos about it. Really, for anyway, the super super NES CD, you mean? Yeah, yeah. There were there were really? prototypes that make it I out didn't know the that. wild. But there are like no games for it. There's some okay. um, developer discs and like kind of s- system test discs, but no actual games. So this brings us to oh, and also like listener, you should definitely do kind of a fall down the rabbit hole of like figuring out what went wrong with this deal part of it is i always heard that like nintendo kind of got cold feet about discs in general they didn't like load times yep uh stuff like that which i believe because then if you look at their systems pretty much forever i think the gamecube had discs but most of the other systems are still were contra uh cartridge based after that they stuck with cartridges the deal fell through there's also a lot of it's it's an interesting story there's some other basically people got wronged companies like there seems like there was a little bit of shady business there and so sony was just like all right well i'm gonna go 
play in my own yard. And uh, they took basically what they had developed and made the PlayStation out of it, which, again, we mentioned the Super Nintendo controller. I mean, especially the initial PlayStation controller, they added, I think, two buttons, two extra buttons on the shoulders. And that's pretty yes. much it. DualShock didn't even come along till a little bit later when they're yeah. like controlling 3D games are hard with a D-pad. We need something else. <laughs> but uh, no, you're but, right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, in a way, like the modern controller came directly from Super Nintendo. This brings us into the 32-bit generation of games. Yep. Uh, CD-based system, obviously, as I've been saying. There were some downsides to the CD format, like load times. As games were getting more complex, the storage space available on CDs versus cartridges mm -hmm. was a big plus. And also the discs were much cheaper and uh, were much cheaper to produce than a cartridge, which appealed to the publishers. And the PlayStation could also play audio CDs. <laughs> there were a couple PlayStation games I remember that if you Nightmare Creatures, I think, was one where if you took the PlayStation game and put it in a regular CD player, you could listen to the game music. It would oh. like it was in a CD format so that it would play on an audio uh, play on an audio regular CD player. In terms of processor and stuff, the processor I, apparently was not particularly powerful, but it had a, a pretty powerful graphics and audio processor. So also not unlike the Super Nintendo in a way. Um, the sound was was really good. I remember that was one thing that that people would talk about was mm -hmm. the sound. You're right. This one was just basically they had stolen a lot of the concepts and ideas from Nintendo because they had made Sony mad and they're like, screw it. We're just going to go do our own game. Then there's yep. a podcast called Business Wars. And one of the episodes on this on that podcast is the Nintendo Sony split over the oh, interesting. Over it. Yeah. So you should check it out. But, but you're right. The, the, the load capacity, these would store 650 to 700 megs for, but in 1990, it doesn't sound like much now, but in 1994, 95, that was a huge deal because usually I think a super Nintendo cartridge, the most it would hold is 32 megabytes. And mm -hmm. so you're increasing the storage capacity by 20 fold. Which is huge, huge difference. Yeah, huge difference for sure. Um, the launch titles uh, in the U.S. anyway, I didn't note the launch titles for like Japan and other countries. But in the U.S., there are some solid games in here. But honestly, it kind of seems like a weak lineup compared to like looking at the, the NES launch with like Super Mario Brothers or even Super Nintendo launch with Super Mario World and F-Zero. But there are still some solid games. One of the first PlayStation games I had played was Battle Arena Toshinden. That okay. was a launch title. It was a fi 3D fighting game. I always thought it was pretty cool. And then ESPN Extreme Games, something called Killik, the DNA Imperative. I don't know what that is. <laughs> NBA Jam Tournament Edition, which is a solid okay. game, but it's essentially yes. just an arcade port. Okay, Power Serve 3D Tennis, uh, the Raiden Project. I'm that sounds familiar, but I don't know what that is. Rayman, which would be a platformer. Yeah. Ridge Racer, Street Fighter, the movie, the game. Oh boy, not, <laughs> not great. Uh, also, I glossed over it, but Ridge Racer was a kind of a big deal. I, I wasn't a big racing fan, but Ridge Racer a big deal turbo eclipse uh total eclipse turbo and then the first twisted metal which was also a big game oh yeah twisted metal was huge 
That's funny. You mentioned the Street Fighter 2, the movie. It's probably not very good that your initial launch has a movie IP in it like we were talking about earlier. <laughs> right? Like the, the big launch lineup has Street Fighter, the movie. Not Street <laughs> Fighter 2, anything like it is an actual Street Fighter game. It's the movie, oh, which man. I don't know. Maybe it's not a horrible game, but. Uh, they're they're trying to cash in off off of the name, I suppose. Street Fighter, yeah. I guess. I, but yeah, usually, typically, like we were saying, you see these IP titles towards the end of the system, not at the beginning, not but at the launch. But PlayStation but, sold sold a lot. Do you remember? Do you have any number? I know it was big. It was. I don't know the exact number, but I do know I was reading in the, my research. It was the first console to sell over a hundred million systems yeah. Uh, yeah. units, and it took nine years to do so but yeah it was the first console to sell over 100 million units so huge huge for sure it was definitely they dethroned sega as the second second in command so to speak and took uh, to nintendo and really they gave nintendo still give nintendo a run for their money nintendo really i mean nintendo's still doing fine obviously oh yeah but they put themselves in a bad way because, yeah, the PlayStation exists because of them. And Sega's gone. And uh, PlayStation became, for that generation, became Nintendo's big competitor. Yeah. And now Nintendo is still do it's They're still doing well, but they it's just almost because they have a certain niche now. Yeah. Whereas Microsoft and PlayStation have kind of, and Sony have kind of, dominated in terms of home consoles Mm -hmm. nintendo's kind of really oriented them more towards portable games and stuff like that yeah yeah they are but it's kind of funny that you mentioned that nintendo created their own worst enemy they really did they really did (laughs) the world look like with a snes cd though i wonder i don't know (laughs) honestly like it probably would have failed or something. Who knows? Probably. Like, it's something ridiculous. Like, uh, for there to have been some weird thing that, for whatever reason, I don't know. Or they would just dominate, dominate it be Nintendo and maybe Microsoft now or something. Historically, uh, add-ons don't, add-ons like that don't do well. Historically, I, it, it could be wrong. I think that's part of the issue, right? Like, because it's an add-on, it doesn't yeah. necessarily get looked at the same way. Like, all the Sega genesis add-ons the 32x and the sega cd and i love those pictures of people where they've got the base system and with all the add-ons and it's just like (laughs) yes this monstrosity of a frankenstein machine it is (laughs) (laughs) uh there were some like there are definitely some classics that came out of uh, the playstation that was a week launch lineup but there were definitely some like the tomb raider uh series which is not unique to playstation but it definitely i i think at the beginning was and then i don't know thinking about the final uh, the final fantasy games on playstation did extremely well oh yeah those those being the game talking about like you know cd there's so much more capacity and then you get like final fantasy seven or eight or whichever one where it's like four discs and you have to play for a while and then switch to another disc yep but my favorite games on the console were uh and i didn't have all these some of these i had rented or something and i i tried to do a list of games i had but honestly i don't remember because there were a bunch and i bought some uh the playstation i believe i bought with my own money i could be wrong but i believe i bought the playstation with my own money and i 
so I did trade off games with that one. Okay. Yeah. Super Nintendo, I didn't. I was still younger, but I was older with PlayStation, and I could do what I I do what I want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I don't remember what all games I had, but some of my favorite games: Tony Hawk Pro Skater Two. That was a classic. Okay, I was a yep. big, big into the Pro Skater games for a long time. I I still would be if the franchise hadn't really like totally nose nose die took a nose dive. <laughs> That's a whole other uh, topic. Uh, Silent Hill was awesome. Oh yeah, super creepy. The classic. Uh, Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver. I actually never played the first Legacy of Kane game. It was a little bit, it looked a little bit more RPG ish, but Soul Reaver was more of kind of an a- action kind of platformer. A little, I mean, it was a 3D game, but had kind of platform elements and there's a lot of jumping around. But Soul Reaver was super cool because it did this thing where you could basically teleport between two dimensions and the there was the normal dimension and like this dark dimension and the dark dimension was the same except the environment would contort and twist in ways to where it became like a platforming puzzle to where you could get somewhere in the normal dimension but in order to get to progress you had to switch to the uh whatever shadow realm or soul realm whatever it was and like the walls would bend in just a way so that you could continue on i always thought that was super cool god super nintendo had the Zelda game. He had the Dark World and the Light World, I think, or something to that effect. So yeah, kind of a yeah. similar type concept. I, I I always thought that was a pretty cool um, mechanic in games. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Metal Gear Solid is a classic. Yep. Oh yeah, I had that ridiculous thing with a uh, psycho psychomantis where it would read your memory card and. He'd use that as like his psychic ability. He'd be like, oh, you save often or you're reckless. You don't, you know, whatever, stuff like that. <laughs> and in, in order to beat him, you had to unplug the controller and plug it into port uh, controller port two. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. who's going to think of that? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's one of those things. How would you know to do that if yeah. you weren't, you know, if you couldn't hop online or get a. It just seemed like a thing people knew. It's one of those. It's like the Mario hidden blocks with the mushrooms. Oh. I don't know who first discovered it, but it's just people knew. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like going back to the keypad on the Atari Fifty Two Hundred. Who was at the developer meeting for that game and said, "You know what? Let's make how you beat the boss. Well, let's make the player plug into Port Two to beat him. Let's let's just do that." What do you think? <laughs> no, that's all. That's all. Uh, Hideo Kojima. Hideo Kojima. <laughs> uh it was such a strange dude death stranding i'm so curious just to see what that game's about but <laughs> but metal gear solid i is super notable i wouldn't say it's my favorite game but it was definitely one of the first like in-depth kind of story driven it felt much more modern than a lot of the other games because it's very story driven but also the world was just like it was good at world building and just full of weird details you could do strange things in that game like <laughs> Well, there was the box hiding in a box, but also like there were weird Easter eggs and secrets. And if you went to a certain spot and used the camera, you could see maggots on the floor in this one area. Or you could I think you could spy on one of the female characters and get her in her underwear. Just weird <laughs> stuff like that. It's just like awesome. what? You can do but, anything in this world. You can just do whatever you wanted, which is probably one of the first open world games. Maybe it did give that feeling of like, yeah, it, it which is a much feels like a much more modern gaming thing experience than most of the games at the time so yeah very notable i thought but yeah that's all i really got to say about the playstation what what was your favorite game on the playstation then 
Okay. Metal Gear Solid um, was up there, but Metal Gear Solid was up there. I'm trying to think of what I played a ton of. It was oh, probably uh, Street Fighter Two, the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the movie, the game. <laughs> Experience the movie. The game. Uh, Watch the movie. Play the game. So I played a ton of. Uh, this is pretty much true of almost every console. I played a ton of Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat Trilogy, I think, was one of the first games I got. And I remember my dad being like, "You have, you have Mortal Kombat games on the Super Nintendo. What's the difference?" And he'd even come and look and be like, "It looks the same." And I'm like, "It's not the same." <laughs> um there's all the characters are actually here and it was it trilogy yeah i think it was trilogy yeah i think so but i mean i i knew the difference because i played tons of mortal Kombat. like you look at the arcade and then the super nintendo version they're not the same the digital actors are not quite as high a resolution but there was a weird thing i noticed about playing mortal Kombat. on a cd-based system there was compromises like shang Tsung, you could used to turn into you're supposed to be able to use like there's different special moves you could turn turn into other characters yeah on the arcade and in a console-based system you could turn into any character if you knew the move but on playstation since it had to if you were going to turn into another character it would have to load that character and whatever data associated with them so there was a compromise either you dealt with the load time or you could pick like certain preset lists of like these three characters or these three characters or those three characters stuff like that okay okay and even right away i I, like the games looked great battle arena toshinden was 3d but i was like cd there's definitely still some downsides okay Uh, yeah that's a good point i never thought of that but cds back in the early 90s i mean that was the rage for games on especially on the pc as well uh, and then you moved, of course, to DVDs. But yeah, you're right. Nintendo was a little slow on on going that route. But the the points you made were the extra storage, cheap media, so your games could be. It was pretty easy to have a twenty nine thirty nine dollar game on the PlayStation versus a Nintendo sixty four was running fifty nine to even sixty nine dollars at the time because to even get thirty two or sixty four megs or even one hundred twenty eight megs on a cartridge back then it was extremely expensive. Nowadays you can buy an SD you know terabyte SD card for you know fifty bucks or sixty bucks or whatever they're going, but to have a seven hundred or even a one gig so just imagine a one gig SD card now is five bucks if you're if you're lucky if you even get a a one gig right yeah exactly well and and the publishers like it's good to get third-party publisher it was you know the publishers liked it Uh, it was probably easier to work with because which is beneficial i think to making helping the playstation succeed because a lot of nintendo consoles the games uh, the console selling games for them are their first party games yes. their marios their zelda stuff like that and so like they're going to put the time and effort and money into producing those games they don't care what the you know a cart or whatever they don't care playstation like you look at that launch launch list they didn't have that they didn't no. have any like proprietary like well-known first Okay, there's you don't have the Sony. I don't know. They didn't even really ever. There's no mascot uh, character. Not really. I think I kind of remember Tekken was big for them, but that was produced again by Namco. That was somebody else. Yeah. So like PlayStation, I think got the, the third party developers really on board, and that helped them a lot. I mean, it's important to a Nintendo console as well, but you need strong third party games if you're a, a yeah. Sony 
to sell sure, systems. Sure. Well, that's why on when I was talking about the NES, this NES and Sega Master System came out about the same time, but NES had better third-party games. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of to speak to the PlayStation's viability. They were able to launch with no marquee games. They didn't have, like you said, their Super Mario Brothers or their Zeldas or their Metroids, and yet they were still. You know, right away, obviously, like you said, their initial launch wasn't that great, but they it sounds like they built a lot of momentum mm-hmm. so that by 96, 97, they were competing against Nintendo pretty dramatically. Yeah, they had yeah. the load time, but I think they, they were able to minimize that load time later on games. They found ways to, instead of an eight-second load time, might get it down to four or three. And there were other things where they could kind of compensate in a way where the system was well, like it could handle... F- video like full motion video yeah. pretty quick and i imagine that's being cd based it maybe it just played it right off the disc which i think is why the final fantasy games were like four discs it was probably all just the fmv you know load times are still an issue but sure less so now especially yeah. since if you buy like on a new system when you buy a game for the most part you're not playing that game off the disc you put the game in and it downloads the rest of the actual game from <laughs> online, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we're used to waiting, I guess, with downloading content anyway, I think in mm-hmm. some ways. I think though, going even even that, going back and playing some of the old PlayStation games is tough. Like if you have to deal with the load times, I think it's even that's tough now because the load times then compared to now, I, I think you could easily wait a minute for a lot of load times on PlayStation. Like it, we're talking... Notable, notable load times. And also all the early, all of them on any system, the early 3D games are so rough. Like it took them a while to figure out how to control, how to move the camera. Some of those games are pretty difficult. And the ones that I think are still remembered pretty fondly that age okay, like Silent Hill or Resident Evils, but those have the god-awful tank controls basically to where left and right turns you and then up and down is forward and back. So you're moving like a tank and that is the worst. (laughs) Well, like we said, you can find all of our picks. Probably there's an emulator someplace for these and you can dive right into metal gear solid again, or you can go play some, some river Raider on the 5,200 or whatever it is. And they're, they're all out there. So again, you can still experience it. And nostalgia is huge nowadays, as we know, and, and people kind of like to, to play some of these old games. I know my kids, uh, we have an emulator of the NES classic and, you know, they'll still go play an old NES game and like it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as much as a modern game, but they definitely are not like, oh, this is horrible. My son, for example, loves Mike Tyson's Punch Out for crying oh, out punch loud. Out. Punch <laughs> Out's good. I think that one ages has aged better than a lot of older games because it's kind of unique. It's a little bit different. And some of the platformers, Mario games stand up too. Oh, yeah. But some of the platformers were just so hard. They just are <laughs> yes. so difficult. Yes. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's a whole, whole story well, not- there. Not long ago, I don't know the deal, but Nintendo added uh, Super Nintendo or Nintendo added to the Switch, their Switch Online. I don't know what the deal is. Super Nintendo games. You could play a bunch of Super Nintendo games on if you have. I think I heard about that. I don't have a Switch, but my son does. And yeah, he just mentioned that they added a whole new catalog of of games to Mm -hmm. the to the console. So, yeah, there's game uh, companies like Nintendo and Sony. Why wouldn't you? 
re-release some of these old games and just let people download them and you, you have access to them. Why not? Yeah, I don't see why you wouldn't. I don't know why Nintendo's so slow in, in doing that. They have a huge back catalog they could go to. Nintendo Sony does too. I, so Sony does too now. I mean, they've got 25 years of catalog. I feel like the old games though age better than like the PlayStation 1 games because like I said the early 3D games were kind of rough. Old school like retro games, old school uh the pixel art Pixel art, pixel art. It stays yeah. gold, you know. <laughs> but Nintendo is weird about their back catalog. For example, like they'll they'll have, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it, but they they'll make it available. They'll make a lot of their older games available on whatever system they have. It's a Wii or Wii U and, and Switch. But the issue is, and you, then you buy these games. Like so, they yes. <laughs> basically they just keep reselling these old games. Yes. Um, like you could buy the old game on the Wii, but then the Wii U come out. You don't have access to it on the Wii U. You have to buy it yes. again. Same yep. thing with the Switch. I think it's just because they like to keep their stuff on lockdown and make sure that if they're going to make it available, that you're going to buy it again. <laughs> yeah, that's my son had the same problem. He had bought some on the the Wii U and it didn't move over to the Switch. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's why they're doing that. But that's a whole nother topic about marketing the games. But uh, Nintendo's, you know, again, all these systems have their have their place and, and they're all fun to, uh -huh. to revisit. Well, I think we can probably hang this one up. I think we've had a good discussion about all these systems and the fond memories that go with them and the, the frustration we had with controllers and <laughs> right everything yep. else that goes along with it. But I'm glad I found another human that had an Atari 5200. <laughs> I'm so surprised when I seen you on the, seen that on your list. Parents don't have it anymore, do they? It's not sitting in a closet someplace. Probably not. We just went through the basement, and got rid of a bunch of stuff. I don't know that it was down there, but probably not. It's possible, but they might have. At one point in the '90s, I know they were. They had looked to try to get the controllers replaced. Decided it was too expensive. Yeah, and I don't know if then at that point they're like, well, let's just sell this off to somebody else. So yeah, it's hard to say. I don't know if okay. they do or not. I'd be curious. I know. I think my parents threw ours away years ago. Just one of those things. You clean out the basement. And cool. Well, thanks, Randy. I'll uh, put the links in the show notes at covertnerd.net. And we'll have to come up with another topic. I think we already came up with a couple of ideas with the insane <laughs> accessories or insane consoles from the 70s and 80s. There's plenty of stuff to, to dive into. So thank you for coming on the show, though. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on again. It was fun. I, I, I always enjoy it. It's a good time. Cool. Anything you want to plug real quick that's happening on the Grolix podcast? Yeah, Grolix podcast. Uh, let's see what's coming up. We've been doing a live stream on oh, Twitch, yeah. but uh, even though it's Twitch, it's not. we're not doing video games. It's actually like live video podcast. We were doing that on CastBox for a while, but it was kind of glitchy, so we moved over to Twitch. That's it. Grolix podcast, twitch.tv slash Grolix podcast, which is okay. G-R-A-W-L-I-X podcast and then uh for anything else you know grolix podcast uh the actual podcast go to grolixpodcast.com that's the main stuff that's the hub for everything grolix yep <laughs> cool all right well thanks randy i appreciate it and we'll hit it up again next time all right thank you all right thanks it was so much fun sitting down with randy i hope we can do it again. And I hope you can join me next time for the next episode. I appreciate the time that you give me. Again, like we said in the show, go to covertnerd.net for all the different ways you can contact me and you can contact Randy. And until next time, nerd it up. <laughs>